your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome back to Off Topple Empire, your source for Big Ten football-related rants and tangents, um, and maybe just a little bit of relevant content. We aim for a little bit, and thanks to the Big Ten's late start, the latest week one, probably in conference history, it's it's really nice after the first game of the season to already be in great season. Because the weather here in Southeast Michigan, after actually very nice fall, very nice fall, I have to say, it's pretty warm, you know, unseasonably warm up in for the last week or so, consistently sunny, very nice colors and everything. But now, now we are in true Big Ten football weather, which is not, oh, it's 65 and sunny and let's go tailgating. No, true Big Ten football weather is 30-something degrees, but not 32 or below, and raining. Yeah, but it's gray season, which means one thing for Illinois. It's time to get gray! Hell yeah! We gotta get out those grays! We're gonna do stealth mode! In gray season. You know, I, I have always been more surprised that late in the season you don't see more teams go with the gray because in the Midwest, you would have a camouflage advantage in many places if you just wore gray. The Lions and the Seahawks went with gray because, you know, now's the time of the year to uh, dress up like depression. Yeah, and it's going to be a bad, it's going to be a bad year for that by all counts. So let's get right into the week one slate here in the Big Ten. Yeah, so without stealth mode activated... Um, Illinois did not do quite as well this time as they did last year. So here is my win fight try Brewster of the week. It is one of my own creations. Uh, oh my god, the hops are closing in. Uh, I can't breathe. No, not like this. No, no, no. IPA. It's gonna be a little bit of, it's gonna be a little bit crowded when you get it in a bottle or a can, but you just gotta make the print small enough and it'll fit on the label. Yeah, it's, uh, it's orange and it's bitter. <laughs> Perfect for you. <laughs> so... We will start there, since since they're the only Friday night game, we'll start there with your team. I expressed some optimism that there was a scenario in which this game remained close for a little, little bit. That looked like it might have been the case, but it didn't turn out that way. Well, I mean, you know, I was, I was pretty pissed off about the defensive performance, but the defense was up and down all last year. Um... What has somehow taken a step back from a pretty bad spot last year is the offense. Um, oh my god, I thought the offense, you know, was gelling a little more towards the end of the year. Never looked good, but was at least able to sustain drives. And, I mean, it looks worse now than it ever looked last year. And, of course, you you know, you credit uh, you credit the defense for, for stopping them, but they, they were able to functionally run an offense and keep drives going against Wisconsin last year and against Iowa, um, which are two decent defensive fronts. Um, I can't simply give Wisconsin all the credit for Brandon Peters suddenly looking like he, he just doesn't know what he's doing out there. He had, I mean, his confidence was visibly shot at one point. There was a point where he had, I believe, Matarbebe over the middle and he just like you know pretty open and he just did this hitch where like he just pulled he started to throw and then he pulled it back and then he threw it again but by that time it was late the modern baby had 10 targets nobody else had more than three and this in theory this was an Illini offense that had some other places to go some other weapons to throw to we lost Trevon Sidney for the game but uh Luke Ford 
was only targeted once. Uh, Barker got three targets. Um, I mean, Brian Hightower, the transfer from Miami, made one hell of a catch on a on an errant Peters throw. Um, you know, at one point in the game, and that was his only target. And it looked like Peters was trying to throw it away. I did expect that the tight ends would have been more involved in the passing game for Illinois here. I wonder if part of that was because because they were so unsuccessful on early downs, especially when they tried to run it for the most part. They're in longer downs and distances, more obvious passing situations. At least that was the, that's what I remember from a handful of drives that stick out in my head. That might not be the picture of a whole game, but that's what sticks out in my mind is they put themselves in unfavorable situations, which is not a thing you can do against a Wisconsin defense that played sound everywhere. And then when they get you up against the wall, that's when they attack and use those big playmaking linebackers. Well, not to mention this, not just Wisconsin, but every year that Rod Smith has been here, the offense has really struggled when it doesn't gain yards on first down. This offense just, whether it was the A.J. Bush one with a more running quarterback or the more passing orient, or, 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 you know, or this more passing friendly Brandon Peters one, just not built for long yardage situations. And it's just so important that they have some success on first down and they spent most first downs going backwards um, in the best of times when they held on to the ball. The uh, second play of the game was a Mike Epstein fumble, and that kind of set the tone. Um, so yeah, as bad as the defense was with, you know, with a lot of experienced players and the, the basically the secondary and the, the linebackers looking lost in coverage, especially 15 yards deep over the middle, which is... <laughs> Not supposed to be where the holes in cover two are. Yeah, there were a couple instances. Full credit to Graham Mertz, who played about as good of a real debut game as you can. I understand he's had a little bit of garbage time in the past, but played about as good of a game as you can. But as I think the coverage team really did a good, you know, usually when a play is the result of a terrible breakdown on one side or the other, the booth will kind of gloss over the deficiency and make it sound like instead the guy who made the play, it was just this all-time galaxy brain type of moment for them. But they were pretty brutal. They're like, (laughs) who was on the call? Do you remember? I do not. But I remember they were breaking down, I believe, the Danny Davis touchdown, the long one right before halftime. Yeah. And they're like, so they've got the graphic up, and they're, but they've got obviously some kind of tool that lets them draw boxes and stuff on the field. And they're like, look at this open space. It's a box like 15 yards wide and like 30 yards yeah. deep right in the middle of the field. It's like, this is not the part that should be open in this defense. I was like, yeah, no, actually, the other guy, really I, I mentioned Delano Ware in my, my original post game write up, but uh, Derek Smith, upon rewatching the uh, safety from. Uh, he sat out last year. He transferred from Miami. He was a safety linebacker guy that could play either position. I, I don't know. It, I mean, he doesn't have this, the kind of speed that you would need to fall for the play-action fakes all the time because he was abandoning the middle of the field all the time. Um, several of those long tight end touchdowns and CNL number two, um, you know, trying to get back to where he was supposed to be. Sure. Well, Jake Ferguson's a tough cover anyway. He was was beyond fire move, arguably the best tight end in the conference. So, but you, you'd expect defensive backs, especially ones that you know you picked up from um, you know f- former highly touted prospects that you picked up in the transfer portal, to be able to you know keep up speed wise with tight ends. You expect that the tight end, though the matchup problem there is then when the ball gets to you, then uh, you know that the guy's yeah, got the size advantage, but. You at least expect him to be somewhere near him when he catches the ball. That usually helps, yeah. So I mean, it's not the worst that an Illini defensive back has been humiliated by a Wisconsin tight end. That honor goes to 
Michael Marchese, who got bulldozed down by uh, Fumagalli a couple of years ago in the end zone. But anyway, as bad as the defense was, the one thing that I thought the Illini did well was actually the thing I was most concerned about, which was the uh, defensive line, especially on the interior, because Roderick Perry is uh, has been a real bright spot um, through one game, the transfer from South Carolina State. And uh, the offense, though, my God, offensively, they didn't get past the 30. Um, that was the only time that they were close to scoring points on offense. And, I, and, and it, was, it was weird because none of the drives that got past midfield, like, they all started with good field position. I'd be curious to see what the longest drive was, but I would be surprised if it was as long as 30 yards because, you know, there were parts of the game where they actually got some pretty good field position by virtue of, you know, Blake Hayes, the coverage teams being decent, and the defense forcing a three and out or something. And then they take that good field position and do nothing with it. So... I'm looking at the drive chart now. There was a 41-yard drive on the second possession of the game for Illinois. 35 yards after that, 28, 25. Oh, a 58-yard drive early in the third quarter. That must have been the one that uh, where we passed up the field goal. Um, well, it was 28-7 to seven at that point. Yeah, so. which I agree with passing up the field yeah. goal, but I thought <laughs> the play call was horrendous. Yeah, if it's more than a two-score game, I don't see any point in ever kicking a field goal. So, Oh, I think that might have been the one where, here we go, here's another nitpick, where they put in the Isaiah Williams package mm-hmm. and started running for, you know, little chunks of yardage at a time. And then on fourth and a, fourth and a short two, they put Brandon Peters back in to, to throw your, the ball. You know, to get your versatile quarterback option on the field. So... I don't get it. it I mean, it, it used to be that you put the running quarterback in for the fourth and short. <laughs> to get the extra blocker when you don't need to go far, yes. Um, and, I mean, Williams definitely looked the part as a runner, but then when they gave him some more time later in the game, he just is not a difference-making passer at this point. No, so... He's not, he's not ready to be our savior. They're going to have to... I really think there's only one realistic option for him if you want to maximize his impact, which is you basically have to run a full option-based offense as your base offense if you want him. And I understand that there's a lot of option in the Illinois playbook already, but I'm talking like two backs in the backfield most of the time. Um, you can still have receivers out wide, but you've got to be I mean, you've basically got to be ready to call, I'd say, 12 to 15 design runs for him a game. I would in no way be opposed to that. I mean, I just I, I don't really care what they do on offense as long as they find something that's worked because since 2018, they really haven't, and that was only effective when they got yardage on first down. Um, after 2018, of course, offensive lineman coach Luke Butkus left, and he's been replaced from within by Bob McClain, and the offensive line hasn't improved at all. Uh, this is a big problem, especially considering that we lost transfer Blake Jarosady for the year, which means that a single injury to our offensive line and we're going to guys that uh, haven't played before. Uh, we've got we've got five experienced starters, and that's it. <laughs> Look, it's depth and experience on the offensive line are luxuries that a lot of teams don't have, though. I mean, that's you're really not too far off from a typical situation with that being the case. I mean, most teams are going to be badly impacted by losing a couple stars on the O-line. So, fair but to say. In general, though, yes, I'm giving Illinois a lot more coverage here. Because I'm an Illinois fan, but also because if you watch this game, you watch any Big Ten coverage, all you heard about was that, oh, wow, Wisconsin looks a lot better. Nobody at any point addressed that Illinois shouldn't have looked this bad, even if they were going to get beat by four or five touchdowns. 
the offense should not have. I mean, it should have been concerning, not just oh yeah, Wisconsin's just that good. Well, broadcast's not going to say that though. Like I said earlier, it's unusual for them to even point out like, wow, something went really wrong with the coverage on this one play. Even that level of criticism from a conference network is kind of atypical. It is. For them to go out and say, God, what is the matter with this team right now? Like, you're just not going to do that. Especially, again, when it's the conference's media. If it was a national media outlet, you might have heard more of that kind of thing. Like, geez, what is Lovey Smith doing here if it's, you know, the ESPN2C crew or something? Yeah, they might. But those people never have anything interesting to say anyway, which, man, they're going to be started on Millen and Byington, the crew that I got stuck with to watch my team's debacle. But we'll yeah, come, so to, you, that. We'll come you, to that you later. You found yourself in the spot that I'm used to because, you know, that ended up with my with my Saturday being way more emotionally balanced because I woke up in the morning feeling dead inside already. Well, I've listened to them before, and I don't recall it ever being that bad, but we're getting, I don't want to go out of order here. So Yeah, so not I mean, not really a lot to say with Wisconsin that you haven't heard already. Uh, the, the passing game is, is pretty good. I don't know that Graham Merce was much better than Jack Cohn would have been, but he was he was as good as he possibly could have been. Yeah, and that's here's what I would say about the passing game, which is it's they're obviously going to miss Quintez Cephas when they get to a better opponent, frankly, if they get to a better opponent, which yeah. we'll talk about more in the preview section. But there were there were moments I mean I get yes, again, Davis had the excellent catch on the long touchdown throw. Ferguson looks like he may have taken a step forward. He certainly had the connection with Mertz that makes you smile if you're a Wisconsin fan. But there were some drops. There were a couple of minor miscues by the receivers, especially Davis and Pryor, that make you think there's really not an alpha passing option in this attack right now. And that could be a problem when there's a better opponent across from them. So speaking of better opponents, one that I think we assumed from the beginning was the ultimate outcome of the conference championship game was Wisconsin against the Buckeyes who hosted Nebraska, the team that wanted so badly to play. And look, for the first quarter and a half, almost uh, most of the first half, they gave Ohio State a fight. you got to give them the credit for that. And it it wasn't a thing where there was just, oh, there was a turnover and a busted coverage and they were up 14-0 or something. No, they they, they played them pretty evenly uh, down to down. And this was, we I think we expressed this opinion last week that if Nebraska was going to keep up, they were going to have to put a lot of points on the board. Yeah, That's going to be true for most of Ohio State's opponents because there are very few defenses good enough to hold that offense down. I saw a quote recently from Nick Saban um, about, about how the game has changed and that he was saying that, well, that it used to be that you had, you know, doesn't matter who you're against, you have a great defense, you're not going to, you know... You, you, they're not going to score a lot of points, but it doesn't work that way anymore. You gotta have, you know, you gotta even a great defense is going to ha- is going to allow points now because you just gotta have the offense. You can't just win games with a great defense anymore. And he was, of course, asked this question after beating Georgia, which you know generally real, has yeah, a good defense. The real time to ask him that would have been after the Ole Miss game. Yeah. When, despite having a vast talent advantage, Alabama still had to have all hands on deck and keep playing well into the fourth quarter because Lane Kiffin's high speed, you know, offense laden with talented weapons kept scoring points on Alabama, which again was a thing that never used to happen. But nowadays, yeah, if you have a capable coordinator, a decent quarterback, and a couple of receivers, you can make any opponent bleed. Yeah, that's that's kind of the name of the game now, and that's so that's what Nebraska was going to have to do, and 
And also, I mean, Nebraska was never going to be able to count on holding Ohio State to really under 45 points. No, and there, it's it's probably also fair to say that depth issues certainly show themselves in these, because we saw this, I, I would compare this game to the Michigan State versus Ohio State game last year, where Michigan State really gave them more of a fight than you would have thought on paper, given the disparity between the two teams. But you can also see at a certain point, the air kind of comes out of your balloon a little bit, whether it's Eventually a lack guys of, get tired. Yeah, a lack of depth a lot of the time, because if Ohio State's defensive pass rushers, for example, need a breather, okay, let's bring in the next five-star. <laughs> Whereas yeah. last, on last year's MSU team, if Kenny Wilkes needs a break, the drop-off behind him is precipitous. Uh, and yeah, that's the same when, thing. When, when Joey Bosa needed a break and they'd bring in Nick Bosa, and then when he'd get tired, they'd... I don't, rem- <laughs> I don't think they actually ever played on the same team together. I think Nick came in the year... But your point is well taken. Okay, yeah. Nick Bosa uh, get tired, they'd bring in Chase Young. Yeah, so... Um, would, would you it was like, kind of a lot like the Indiana game. I think last year, two years ago, it was the same thing happened. They, they kept it close in halftime, and then, you know, you could see which team had the deeper roster. Yeah, and so... Once the, and it also kind of felt like once the scripted stuff ran out for Nebraska, things sort of yeah. came to a halt on offense. So it went, it was tied at 14 at one point, and from there it was 38-3 to in favor of Ohio State the rest of the way. Uh, Justin Fields' line in this isn't going to catch much Heisman attention, although he was extremely efficient, only missed one pass. But they only needed 276 and a couple of touchdowns from him through the air. Um, kind of an inefficient day on the ground, called his own number 15 times for 54 yards and a score. But this was a balanced run-based offense as they got a bunch of carries for Sermon, a bunch of carries for Teague, and the Buckeyes opted to throw it more than twice as much or have to run it more than twice as much as they threw. So if you're looking from the outside, you know, if you're a Michigan fan, if you're a Wisconsin fan, if you're a Penn State fan for this week even, maybe, and you're looking for some chink in the armor here for Ohio State, they really only had two receivers that made many plays of note. That was Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. Now, that being said, (laughs) a typical game, do they really need more than two dominant outside receivers? Probably not. And again, that's not to say that if those two guys go down, they don't have people to replace them. Yeah, that's just how this game went, was that Fields was showing his rapport with those two guys, as we kind of expected. I mean, that combo was really talked about. Whenever anyone mentions Ohio State in the offseason, it's Fields. It's, you know, nobody was sure who was going to be healthy for the running back, so the next names down would be Olave and Wilson. So that's about all there is to say about that is, you know, it's our Nebraska contributors in the Slack channel were for the most part encouraged that their team put up as much of a fight as they did, because unless, again, you're a fan of a Penn State or a truly delusional fan of a Michigan team, for example, when you go up against Ohio State, that's really what you're looking for. You're looking for your team to make it interesting past halftime. How about that? And then maybe, yeah. and then we'll see. Maybe there's maybe there's a critical injury. Maybe there's a big penalty or a turnover, and we get just enough juice out of that to make it interesting after the third quarter. That's about where you are. Was against that Ohio just State. more delusional back then, or is this really way beyond? what the Jim Trestle Ohio State was. Oh, yeah, by a damn mile. It's not even close. Don't get me wrong. There were definitely years back then when you knew... I'll give you the best example I can think of here, which was the 2008 matchup where the Buckeyes had James Laurinaitis. I believe Malcolm Jenkins was on that team. Um, I think that still would have been... John Simon might have been an underclassman, um, but young Terrell Pryor um, and Beanie Wells. and But, like, those guys, and they came to MSU, and everyone was all excited 
excited. Like, oh, maybe we're good enough because there were signs that D'Antonio might be a decent coach then. So you're thinking, all right, maybe this is the game. Yeah, Ohio State's a lot better. But whatever, let's get out there. It was 28-0 like three minutes into the second quarter. And my distinct memory is I was right up close to the front of the student section in one corner of the field. And Ohio State's driving towards us. And Beanie Wells takes it off, I think, the left. Yeah, would have been off the left side of the formation. Puts some safety's face into the ground. Strolls to the end zone untouched. Stomps on the corner of the end zone as he gets in. It's like... Isn't that really called for? That doesn't feel necessary. <laughs> yeah, we get it. We get that you're better. We all saw it. You don't have to do that. Like same year, I the same exact year. Yeah, I thought you know that we could turn things around against Ohio State, having beaten them the year prior. And um, I believe it was the second half. They were up by a couple of scores, and we, it, was, it was third down. And Beanie Wells uh, took it off tackle, and then just and this was pretty much right in front of where I was too. Uh, straight up jumped over Dante Hardeman. Didn't even didn't even touch. <laughs> I mean, and Hardman wasn't on his knees or anything. He was getting low to tackle him. Uh, he just straight up jumped over the guy. and Yeah. So occasionally... There I, were, I think I left the stadium after that touchdown. There were moments where it felt like, God, we were so far. But it wasn't every position across the board, two or three deep, you felt like that. You, felt, like, you are, felt like, okay, we're probably going to lose... But we could catch them with their pants down here, and maybe yeah, where there are some maybe they'll screw up, and we can win. Yeah, where there are some weaknesses, where it's like, all right, so even though they've got all this talent, they're playing this style of football that's going to keep the number of possessions low and is going to give us a chance. Where like, if there's a again, you know, a tipped ball, pick six, or a blocked punt or something, there's going to be an opportunity here because they're not looking to unload on us with their maximum possible capacity. They just want to get they want to basically just cross the plane of winning the game as early as they can and then shut the fuck shut the fuck down whereas now urban meyer and now ryan day it no scorched earth man we're we are making use of every single ounce of athleticism we have and we're going to score as many damn points as we have to until we are satisfied and their version of what a satisfactory margin is is very different that i think is the biggest difference i actually you know the more i think about your question i don't think the talent differential is so different than it used to be they're definitely somewhat better than they were before because trestle was never as good at pulling talent out of texas and florida um, uh, they've definitely got more of an imprint in those places now. The difference, I think, is just that it's mostly just a matter of philosophy, which is now, there, first of all, there's a playoff to shoot for. It would have been interesting to see if there had been a football or a college football playoff when Jim Trestle was there. Might that have changed his gentle, his, his gentleman and scholar and senator approach to the game where he's trying to be collegial with everyone and, yes, we'll wring your neck 28-0, but then that's where we'll stop and we'll respectfully run the ball into the pile well, for yes, the Well, yes, a term, term that, I've coined, that, that, that I believe I coined and used several times to describe what Wisconsin occasionally does to an opponent that can, you know, hold them to four yards of carry. A gentleman's blowout, where it's 24 <laughs> to 10, but it never feels close. Yeah, so I think the difference is now Ohio State does not accept the gentleman's blowout. And again, given the existence of the college football playoff field, I can't blame them for that now. Before that was the case, in like the early days, the early to middle Urban Meyer days, there was no excuse for that. He was just an asshole. That's my take on it. So I hope that, I mean, it's a good question though. I like, uh, I like the I like the flashback to remembering, like, oh yeah, they've always had lots of elite players. <laughs> yeah, it's just never, it's just never felt anywhere near this insurmountable. No, but again, I think that was because of a slightly different approach on the part of their coaching staff, and, and also like a greater percentage of their players now are elite prospects. Yeah, they they're not taking quite as many. 
of the second tier Ohio players as they used to just for the hell of it. They don't feel Ohio like recruiting has opened up, if we're honest. Somewhat, that, yeah. Because <laughs> generally Ohio State is mostly too good for Ohio now. Yeah, and, and have come programs like Kentucky and Cincinnati instead of my team, which made a killing off of that for like a decade and then just sort of stopped trying. So that was Yeah, funny. I mean I think this year Justin Fields could throw could could throw pick sixes on his first five pass attempts and I still would think that we would lose by at least three touchdowns. I don't know about that. I get, but I gather that you're making your point via exaggeration. So, all right, uh, let's they spotted 35 points at the beginning of the game with a whole like 60 minutes to go. Could they make up a 35 point deficit against Illinois? Yes. Sure. Yeah, they could, but it would. I don't think it would be as sure of a thing as you do. All right, let's get this over with. Um, I'm in a weird place after the Rutgers Michigan State game because there are a couple things that are true at the same time. So. For one thing, I think this confirms that MSU is in every bit of as bad of a place as I worried they were. It confirms that Mel Tucker was put in a really terrible spot by his predecessor in that he not only started later than usual, but then you have all the interruptions to the offseason program with COVID. It's not it's not very surprising to me that they looked as unorganized and unprepared as they would did you, you obviously you have to do better though you can't have seven turnovers in a con you're not going to beat anybody making seven turnovers which by the way rutgers is better they are obviously somewhat better their, their quarterback wasn't a complete non-entity they have a little bit more defensive playmaking with some of the guys they brought in but they're not good uh they're not going to be good there's there's Signs, though, that Greg Schiano's got a plan and he's going to act on it as quickly as possible. And nor were they expected to be good this year. No. There was so, almost no scenario where they weren't, like, marginal to bad. It's just, this is, I can't imagine a more encouraging coaching debut than winning your first damn game and it's a Big Ten game and it's the first that they've won since 2017. Sure, sure. That's not to say he's guaranteed to set the world on fire, but that was always the worrying thing is, well, can he survive how awful Rutgers is going to be until he this, can really make a mark on the team? And yeah, this I, goes this goes a long way. But it I will, really does. the last I mean, the last thing I'll say about the disadvantages Tucker had here was I think you saw in this game what a difference that extra time made. Greg Schiano got to Rutgers at the beginning of December. He had time. He first of all, he had been going for this job for a while, so presumably he had a very good idea of what the roster already looked like. But then he has the time to look at this team and think to himself, oh, hell no. I'm not going into a season with this completely bare coverage that this doofus Chris Ash has left me. And so I'm, I'm going to the transfer portal and getting nine guys. The rumor that I, I heard that makes a lot of sense in hindsight was that uh, the reason that there were those st the stalls and the back and forth on whether or not Shiano would take the job is because he basically insisted, look, if I'm going to do this, I have these demands that you're going to need to do for me in order for me to do this right. Not because I want this, but because it's going to be necessary because I'm not going to be able to do it if you don't do these things for me. Yeah. Right. So that that's that's another place where he had just an enormous advantage in just the head start in, you know, he's able to bring in coaches. They met the players. I have no idea if Mel Tucker's coaches have ever met the players. Before he was hired, I can't imagine they would have. Maybe a couple of them from the odd recruiting battle that Colorado was involved in, but he was only at Colorado for a year. And before that, 
He was at Georgia, where they weren't exactly deigning to involve themselves with many players Michigan State was going after. So, no, I'd be terribly surprised if Tucker had met any of his players before he got to campus. And you, again, seven turnovers is an insurmountable deficit. That it was within 11 points is probably a testament to the fact that there is some dynamism that this staff was able to extract from its players. So, Here's the thing, and here's an example of how I feel, because again, losing two Rutgers in the year 2020 is still terribly embarrassing, especially as like a 13-point favorite or something. To lose them by almost that much is really bad, and there's no question about that. But in these circumstances, is it really that surprising? No, I can't say it was. And when we were talking about this last week, I said, look, we know less about Michigan State than we probably have about any team at any at going into any season in the last decade that I could think of. So they were, there were certainly some unknown quantities here. And what I will say is, you know who led the conference in passing last week? Who? Rocky Lombardi. Yeah. He was the only 300-yard passer in the conference. There, and for his part, there were a couple of obvious terrible mistakes. Like he, I think I talked about this with you that day. On two occasions, he and Speedy Naylor were not on the same page on what looked like the same route combination where Naylor kept going. And Lombardi threw a comeback. Oh, and the no. second and the second time he did that, Rutgers corner apparently was like, maybe he, maybe he's gonna get this wrong. <laughs> so he just <laughs> sat down and easily threw it right to him because the receiver was still going upfield. Also That's lost the, the ball at his own one. He did that. I blame. So it, you can blame whoever you want for that. Is it true that Lombardi had no idea it was coming? Yes. Is it his fault? No. It was the fault of I forget which running back. I think Connor Hayward. Whoever it was that was tasked to block because Rutgers sent a blitz. The offensive line did it correctly because they picked up pressure from the inside out, which means the edge guy has to be chipped or altered or in some way handled by the running back. He didn't do it, so the guy got a rush at Lombardi's blind side. I don't know how much Rocky really can take the blame for that. Is it true that a lot of quarterbacks will kind of feel like even just in their peripheral vision or hear the footsteps of the guy coming? Sure. But again, he's not. he's got some starting experience, but not that much. Um, and yeah, look, he lost two fumbles out of the pocket. He happened to, one of them was recovered by an offensive lineman. And the two receivers that honestly made me think that this offense could be explosive, Jaden Reed and Jalen Naylor, lost three fumbles between them <laughs> so um it's this is this thing is going to explode in a lot of directions a lot of the time i, I still can't help but think that there's some promise here but this is going to be a, pro, a a process it's going to be a long difficult process what i'm less sure about than anything is the defense because rutgers had a couple of scoring drives but again most of these are set up where you mentioned they got the ball inside the two yard line on one of those drives like are you gonna yeah. put that you're gonna assign that seven points to the defense they almost held them to a field goal they just committed a pass interference that reset the down counter so the defense is harder to measure because i still think rutgers offense is going to be pretty bad but i think they're deep that rutgers defense is going to be back to the better chris ash teams like already if they're not a little better you than mean that. the 2017 team yeah the one that was pretty okay the one that won conference games yeah that's unbelievable that he had four seasons and only one of them did they win a conference game so i think you're actually you're actually in about around the same place that i was when we lost to rutgers back in 2017 and it was a season that i that was already terrible that i knew was terrible and i went into the game like like you know many months prior to the game i'm thinking oh yeah well at least we should beat rutgers but by the time it actually got to game week i was saying no we're definitely definitely losing at home to rutgers and it's yeah. gonna suck the difference is you didn't have to actually go to the stadium and actually see what it was like and see how dead everything was that that's why i think i was a lot more hurt by that if i had just been able to watch it remotely 
And also, there was just no fans because of COVID. <laughs> then I would have felt a little differently. Yeah. But uh, yeah, here's, so here's here's the last thing that I'll say. Somebody about this was night. going to do it. I mean this genuinely. If this is going to happen, I'm very happy that it happened right up front. Let there be no delusions in my mind or anyone else's mind about how bad this team is right now and how far they have to go. And so, and this puts a bow on yet another thing where they you know it's 2020 so why would something go my way nothing else has this should not have been surprised i should have bet the house on rutgers to not only cover but the money line and then i would be still not happy but i could dry my tears with a lot of vengeance yeah so and to lose a game where you made this many mistakes <laughs> by Less than like thirty-five points is still kind of inspiring sure. in a way. And but again, without trampling too much on the preview, uh, there's a string of opponents coming up here where if MSU is minus two, minus three, minus four in the turnover margin, it's gonna be a fifty-point loss. So that's you gotta clean that up in a hurry. And look, okay. So the last last thing I'll say is. Mel Tucker came out and took the bullets such as they were. It's not like MSU's beat writers have ever been all that inquisitive or probing, but he came out and admitted, yeah, look, I know that our fan base expects better of this team. He even went to a little bit of detail about how they work on ball security, how it's like one of the first things they work on. He's like, clearly that's not good enough. We're going to get, we know we need to get this fixed. Antonio would have come out, sourpuss expression, refused to answer any questions, and called it a day. So well, I don't know what the hell you expected. Next question. I mean, that's like that's literally he's literally used that count. So that that's not gonna mean anything. And you know the excited the potential for excitement with those receivers is not going to mean anything if they don't clean up these very elementary mistakes. But the good news is that their biggest problem does feel correctable. Now they're not gonna make their offensive line much better this year. They're still running for like a buck and a, a yard and a half a carry that's not something they're going to correct quickly or overnight but the you know the turnovers i think that's something they can get a handle on or at least they better be able to and if they can't fix something that soon i might have to amend my position earlier of well this season can't teach us anything if this staff cannot get those turnovers under control even in this environment that is a bad sign that is a big early blaring red light red flag bad sign so let's move on to a steadier game a calmer game a more black and yellow goldish game Yep, Purdue 24, Iowa 20, and... I will tell you, in these uncertain times, TM, it is nice to see that Kirk Ferentz, even after an off-season of, of intense turmoil and speculation and promised introspection, is still capable of making his fans tear their hair out in frustration. Yep. Take a 17-14 lead into halftime, play a scoreless third quarter, and then get outscored 10-3 to in the fourth. Yeah, and this again is with Purdue going once again without Rondale Moore. Who Did, did you see, did they ever specify if he was out because of COVID or because he was hurt or for some other reason? No, they said for reasons. Okay. and so I don't believe that there were actually any reasons given, but... Which is strange. That kind of, that you would think, you would think. They're also missing King Doru, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, who was projected to be their leading running back. And so, again, I understand that there's really, in the terms of resume wins, not a whole lot there for Jeff Brom just yet. 
aside from that hilarious Ohio State game. But it is fair to say that, look, this is a running game that was not thought to be very good, but they've got a former walk-on in Xander Horvath who has himself a night against an Iowa defense that's usually pretty stout against the run. 21 carries for 129 yards. And with a dynamic threat like Rondale Moore out of the lineup, David Bell is once again making a case for me as the conference's best individual receiver. 13 catches, 121 yards, three touchdowns. Again, in a passing game that without Moore was not really distributing things the way they usually do in spreading it around. And he caught all three of those touchdowns, but Milton Wright also found some room to work. Seven catches for 85 yards, so that that could be the emerging tertiary target if uh, Moore comes back. Yeah, so for Iowa, there's reason for concern beyond just losing the game in a shortened season, which is we knew there was turnover on this defense early on, and we don't usually see them run or struggle against the run in this fashion. The easier thing to focus on if you're a Hawkeye fan is, look, you lost a couple fumbles. You had, I think, 10 or 11 penalties. A lot of penalties that either ruined your own drives or extended Purdue's. They outgained them by 80 yards. Yeah, and so that's this is this game was diet MSU Rutgers. Four for 13 on third downs. Yeah, so you're coming up short in a lot of key areas at key moments. Ten penalties, 100 yards. Yeah, so I knew I man, I thought I was exaggerating, but apparently not by much. Also, an interesting pattern of usage with Tyler Goodson, who I don't believe got the ball even once in the fourth quarter. And it, look, they have a capable backup in Makai Sargent, but in a tight game with this, you know, with the game on the line, really, I would think that your objectives offensively are to get the ball to two guys, Goodson and Amir Smith-Marset. And well, first of all, I don't think Smith-Marset, none, none of their receivers really had a big impact here. Amir Smith-Marset, Smith-Marset had two carries for 18 yards and no receptions. Yeah. And that's, I don't think that's acceptable for kind of the most complete dynamic offensive player they've had maybe since Marvin McNutt. Uh, there, you know, some indications that with a new quarterback, he was kind of locking in on the tight end, which is a very common feature of this offense. But you got to find a look. We, we every time we talk about Iowa this offseason, we're talking about this for once. Great cast of offensive weapons they have and that if this quarterback was able to make use of them they were going to be good well the quarterback did not make use of them not entirely his fault i mean it's, he's not the one who stats how goods in the whole fourth quarter but look <laughs> their solutions are right in front of them they just have to take control out for themselves well and wouldn't that be about the most iowa thing possible is to just completely waste a talented group of receivers watch them maybe make some noise in the nfl win 70 percent of your games anyway <laughs> yeah well again what you mentioned was exactly five and a half this year um, so from the Purdue side of things here, of course, beyond Rondale Moore being out, the other interesting thing is the head coach was sitting out. So younger brother Brian Brom was actually the head coach for this game and got one of their bigger wins, really, of the of their Big Ten of the Big Ten season or of their Big Ten careers under this staff. I mean, you can certainly make it out. Yeah, the Ohio State win was a lot of fun, but at the, that point in the season, they were out of the West. Yeah, so. that's a hell of a proof of concept, honestly. I mean, that, you know, take down Iowa at the beginning of the season like this and, you know, play them even through the whole game, basically. Yeah, so just a, just another interesting note that his younger brother is now 1-0 and in Big Ten games as a head coach, whereas Jeff's overall record, I think, has to be sub-500. Um, right, so we'll keep this moving here and get to what should have been the game of the week, but honestly lost a lot of its pizzazz beforehand because of the number of players one team was missing. Michigan 49, Minnesota 24. This game was drunk early and often. Yeah, it, well, it looked like it was going to be a thrilling back-and-forth shootout kind of thing, but the problem was 
was, Minnesota's bag of tricks ran short very quickly, and they they made some really aggressive, unintelligent type of decisions early on. So first of all, it's totally fair to say that you are at a massive, probably insurmountable disadvantage when your kicker, your punter, and your long snapper, plus two starting offensive linemen and the starting linebacker are all out for the game suddenly. That's a big disadvantage, but you've still got to make what you can out of that. And obviously, missing all of your specialists, there was going to be a fake call at some point in this game, probably at no more predictable juncture than when P.J. Fleck called for it, which was, I want to say, early to mid-second quarter. Maybe I'm remembering that yeah, right. Yeah, that is on 28, but... Yeah, so, so maybe that's the advantage that he thought he had was they'll never think I'm going to do it from here. And it's also kind of understandable because, man, Minnesota's run defense... You can say that, look, having Braylon Oliver in there would have made a big difference. You can think that if you want, but Michigan's going to be probably one of the two or three best rushing attacks in the conference. They've got a great group of running backs. We saw Blake Corum get involved with a couple of big plays in this game. Charbonnet looks a step faster. Hassan Haskins has a slightly different running style, but is very good as well. And of course, now they add Joe Milton to the mix, who I'm not going to say... The offseason comparisons to Cam Newton are ridiculous, but he is a big capable runner so even though through the air he was kind of nothing special he didn't have to be and this is going to be Michigan's preferred game plan anyway it feels like this has really been what Harbaugh has wanted from the beginning which is this sort of diverse multi-dimensional run game that puts so much stress draws the defense up and spreads it wide so that vertical plays can then be made now why they chose to just go pro style for his first several years, not really sure. Well, it, perhaps in coming from San Francisco, that was basically the he, latest version of the offense that he had. Was it though? Because I feel like his early offenses at Michigan were more pro style than the offenses he ran with the 49ers. Well, sure. But there's also personnel constraints there. Remember the quarterbacks that he inherited when he came yeah, to Michigan. True. You're talking about Wilton Spate. Um, they picked up, what's his nuts? Jake Rudock in the transfer portal. John O'Korn in the transfer portal. These are not the most fleet of foot guys. So I think he probably would have liked to have more of a running dimension from the beginning with his quarterbacks. But the best quarterbacks available to him couldn't do it. I mean, Wilton Spate might as well have had his feet stapled to the ground. So I think that in one sense, that's a coach trying to make the best use of the talents of the players he has. And the other thing was he had big, rangy, wide receivers at the time. Why wouldn't you try to throw it a little more? So the offensive line for Michigan did look good considering there's four new starters. I I wonder what we're going to find out about Minnesota in the next couple weeks. Assume, and again, look, because of the COVID protocols in place, my understanding is those players are not back for this week, that they won't be. You got to sit out for 21 days. Well, the question is, did they disclose that they were positive COVID tests? I believe they did. Did um, they? Or were they just held out for reasons that were obviously COVID, but they didn't say were COVID? I don't know. And that's... <laughs> because this is where you get to shenanigans that are kind of undermining what we've been saying about, oh, well, the Big Ten's at least doing this in a way that it ensures it holds no, everybody no, accountable. No, 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 no. Time out. Because what is reported from the school to the Big Ten does not then necessarily become public information unless some media source gets it or the school chooses to disclose it, which obviously in a lot of cases they're not going to. Right. Because if your opponent knows that you're missing two starting offensive linemen, that changes their, I mean, they're going to be cooking up all manner of blitzes at your right side. So I think if there's any opportunity, these coaches are going to withhold information if they can. Why then, for example, Wisconsin confirms that Graham Mertz tests positive? I don't know. I don't know why they opted to make that announcement. 
but I don't think there's anything in the reporting protocols that requires that to then become publicly available information. So we don't know when these players tested positive for Minnesota, or as you're pointing out, even if they tested positive twice. Presumably, you're not going to hold out all of your kickers and two of your starting offensive linemen unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. Um, and again, that, this basically means that every time we get to game day, there's, there's, a, there's a, a not insignificant chance that Illinois just doesn't play. <laughs> well, because you wouldn't know it. Like, if, if it was shut down the program level, you wouldn't know until kickoff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, to wrap up here, we'll talk a little bit about Minnesota's offense. I, I think they're going to be okay long term. I do think there's a clear imbalance in their passing game now in that they, and maybe this is just a function of them playing from behind, so they felt they needed to force it to Bateman a little more. But this, this Michigan defense exposed some stuff for them. First of all, Remember the name Michael Barrett, who's going to be their kind of new versatile pass rushing linebacker type, because he looked dynamic. Um, but even against a more typical defense, I mean, Michigan just ran a lot of coverage concepts where they're making sure, like, just have a cloud of guys near Bateman at all times. Kind of shift your coverage in such a way that there's not as much space for him to operate. And Minnesota could not make them pay for that. Chris Ottman-Bell had one catch for 45 yards, so it was a big play, but one catch. They tried to get their tight ends a little more involved. That was supposed to be a feature of their new offensive coordinator. That didn't really happen. Their running backs have not really been used much as pass catchers so much in the past that I recall. I guess they did that with Shannon Brooks a little bit. Now, maybe that's not fair to say, but they weren't really a factor there. In this game, they have to find receiving options other than Bateman because look when they were running the ball especially to the left side of the offensive line that was still intact they still made yards here so there's clearly enough in talent that when if they're ever intact again I think Minnesota is going to be okay offensively I think on defense there are a lot fewer answers I want to revisit a point that I made about the first quarter of this game being extremely drunk oh yeah go ahead so here's what happened uh, to start off the game you had a Michigan drive here where then they crossed to the Minnesota 43, but then got an unsportsmanlike conduct to move them back to their own 42, uh, and took a, uh, then, then took a sack for loss of eight yards, punted on fourth and 30, it was blocked and returned to the 17. Minnesota scored a touchdown, but then uh, Michigan had a one-play 70-yard touchdown drive on a 70-yard Charbonnet run. Uh, Minnesota punted, Michigan went down and missed a field goal, and then returned Michigan's first play, or Minnesota's first play for a touchdown on a fumble. Uh, <laughs> so then, then Minnesota got a field goal and then they just traded touchdowns for a while. So this, this game started out very drunk. For a while, and then again, the, you know, <laughs> because it felt like Minnesota was playing kind of one-handed here, um, especially <laughs> in terms of their offensive line balance, there was always a sense that things were going to run out here. And well, it felt they, like the game they, got away from them the moment that down 28-17, they failed on the fake punt inside at their own 28. It felt like, I don't know if PJ needed to do that, but in a sense, it also felt like he was trying to... He was know, trying to come up with a, an 11-point play at once. Yeah, like he, he spent 
Uh, like, like he basically, instead of cutting his losses, he's just like, all right, well, no, I'll parlay what I still have left into the next play, and then that's going to save me. And I think... And he I, he was more candid in his presser about the weaknesses in their linebacking group in particular than I would have expected from him. It was actually pretty charming. Yeah, I think that play was him understanding and acknowledging we cannot stop this one game. Yeah. So we need to score and keep this within a possession or we are never going to catch up because every time they get the ball, they're going to be able to run it and take as little or as long as they want to to put it in the end zone every time. So we've got to fake this kick now. Um, that being said, what do we tell you about the importance of punting depth in this conference? My God, how many times have we said it? Punting is winning, guys. Punting is winning. So. Let's go into a game where Maryland probably would have wished that they were able to punt a few more times. Maryland 3, Northwestern 43. The other team that didn't score an offensive touchdown, I didn't even mention Illinois' only score of this game, came on a hilarious fluke oh, that yeah. was then immediately described as lovey ball, which of course <laughs> means uh, your offensive drive fails and turns the ball over, and then you just end up with a touchdown on a turnover anyway. And you intended it to happen the whole time. <laughs> that's a sustainable winning model of football. No, really, it is. Why, where are you going? Yeah, like that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, if there's a, after this game, if there's a team in this conference that, that I, I still think Michigan State's going to beat, it is Maryland. Uh, they, so, for one thing, they led in this game because they snuck in their field goal first. And then they were outscored... 43 to nothing the rest of the way. It, it turns out that maybe placing all your confidence in picking up the spare Tungo Vailoa, who Bama probably just put on scholarship to make sure they landed Tua, kept him happy, um, that confidence turned out to be misplaced. So in his first start for Maryland, and I think anywhere, I'm, I don't think he ever started at Bama. No, he did not. 98 yards, no touchdowns, three interceptions on 14 out of 25 through the air. They sub in Lance Lejean late in the game. He completes all four of his passes, but those are against backups. I haven't followed up with Maryland sources to see if there's been any change. It's awful early to make a quarterback change, but that, boy, that is a big exhibit A that Tungle by Low is probably not going to be the answer. These are your only two options, really, at quarterback this year. So whenever you do make the change, if you're Maryland, it's probably going to be for good. Well, I'll tell you what, a quarterback change is something that you often see when your season's lost. <laughs> you could pretty safely say their season looks pretty lost right now. Well, here's the other thing to think about. In this environment, does it not make more sense to fire your bullets as soon as you think you might need them? Because exactly. there's no guarantee that there's going to be a conference season yeah. past next week. Like, Ma there's Maryland has been eliminated from the college football playoff, okay? <laughs> nobody's eligibility is going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, nobody's getting fired because nobody has the budget. So, go nuts! But I can see, on the other hand, why... For those same reasons, I mean, who, look, my understanding is both of these guys, I believe Lejean is a redshirt sophomore. I don't know what Tungle Bailoa's eligibility is, but probably so. he's a got... true sophomore. Mm, I think or a redshirt red freshman. Mm, I don't think so. Um, but I don't care. Hey, don't look that up. I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. My point is, because the eligibility 
freezes in place, both of these guys have multiple years of eligibility left. So it is important to get this decision right. And I understand how you may reasonably think if you sit Tungo Vailoa that you're never going to get his confidence back and you're basically dismissing him for good. So I can understand if they want to hold off on that decision as well. But boy, this is uh, this is not good. And as much as it's important to identify your future playmakers, if you don't build some confidence in your team that what you're doing can work by you know winning a couple games or staying close to mediocre conference opponents, then none of that's going to matter anyway. So out game five thirty seven to two hundred seven, out rushed three twenty five to sixty four. Yeah, four and turnovers to none for Northwestern. 31 first downs to 14, just a complete ass kick. Pick whatever measure of numbers By you want. By any metric, totally. And we'll, we'll do kind of my favorite thing because I think this really, it, it shows sort of the flow of the game, which is we're going to run through the d drive chart here really quick because it's hard to say looking at this, whether the defense or the offense doomed Maryland more, or if they were hand-in-hand hand jumping off the cliff together. So we mentioned that field goal that Maryland got on the opening drive. That was the end of a 12-play drive. After that, here's their drive chart on offense for Maryland. Three plays, interception. Two plays, interception. Three plays, punt. Four plays, punt. Fumble on a kickoff return. Three plays, punt. That takes us to halftime. They're very fortunate, given that drive chart, that it was only 27-3 to at that point but it may well as well have been 273. So counting all those up, plus that 12 play first drive, Maryland ran 27 plays in the first half, and 12 of them were on their opening drive that got them three points. The problem, of course, is that their defense only forced one punt in the first half themselves, and Northwestern otherwise scored on every possession. And that ratchets up the pressure on your offense's next possession, when it's like, oh shit, we're behind seven nothing, now we're behind now 14 nothing, now it's 27, now it's 17 nothing, now it's 24 nothing, now yeah. So it's one of those games where the snowballing is real. Every next possession where your defense gives up, gives up points, offense can't do anything, defense gives up points, it just gets the pressure ratchets This is what they mean when they talk about the wheels coming off. Yeah, and it's like... We most teams that are playing in the middle of the talent level, like I understand this doesn't happen to Ohio State, it doesn't happen really to Michigan except against Ohio State. Yeah, it happened to uh, Ohio State against Clemson that one time. That one time, but the more <laughs> recent time they were certainly in a closer game. But so for most of us, you see these types of games maybe once a season, maybe once every couple seasons where it's like, Maybe a little more often. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to accept that that's going to be a new pattern for me just yet, even though that's probably going to be a new pattern for me. So, Man, <laughs> it's, get, it's... get used to it because you know what? You got the... I'm, I'm not saying get used to it all the time, but get used to it being the expectation that you want to go in with to make sure that it gets beat because you're already getting the treatment uh, that, like, because the Rutgers... Minnesota, or the Rutgers Michigan State broadcast reminded me so much of the kind of broadcast that like Purdue Illinois was in like 2013 where God, it's like bad. it's like like the sea crew it's 11 o'clock and it's like the weather's like kind of shitty and it sounds like there's nobody there and uh yeah. it just it had all the trappings of that but anyway so to talk a little bit about Northwestern in this game their new offense did look a lot more functional, certainly a lot more run-oriented than you would see under Mick McCall's insistence of throwing three-yard passes. Peyton Ramsey looked perfectly capable. They ran the ball 53 times and still got better than six yards a carry, so that's, man, again, you want to talk about the wheels coming off. When your opponent clearly wants to run on every single down, and they do, and you still can't do anything about it, that's a really disheartening feeling, and it's not the thing you want to open the season with, so... yeah. We'll see if Maryland's able to get off the mat 
But for Northwestern, I think you've got to they've got to be confident that okay, we made what looks like a pretty good offensive coordinator choice here. He seems to have a scheme that fits with our personnel. Maybe we can steady things and get back on course sooner rather than later and put last year behind us once and for all. And, you know, we all knew that they were going to be better than last year. Yes. There, there's no chance that, I mean, last year, was a, last year was a 2016 Michigan State type outlier. Yeah, it, like that, that doesn't, that's not consistent with the talent that they have and the trajectory they were on. Something weird happened here. Are they going to fix it? Okay, yes, they um, Okay, so now we're on to the game of the week in the conference. Penn State 35, Indiana 36. You and I watched most of this game together. It was a fantastic game. Man, did Indiana <clears throat> almost reach new levels of Indiana-ness with that squib kick at the end of regulation that they basically kicked straight into the hands of a Penn State up man, one of the hands team really, um, to give them the ball basically right around midfield with like what, 13, 15, 17 seconds left at the end of regulation. It's like they only need to go like 10 or 12 yards yeah. to make this a manageable field goal. You know, that was crazy because uh, you know, because of the team that I'm a fan of, I am always, you know, trying to figure out the the road to us blowing this in the event that we're leading a game, right? Because I just want to be prepared for how it's going to go down, how it could go down. To, to the point where usually, um, you know, if a game ends on one possession and we win, I usually spend, spend about 10 seconds going, no flags, no flags, no flags. <laughs> big money, no whammy, big I'm serious about this, I do this. But, but... Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that Indiana's path to what looked like maybe imminent defeat involved a squib kick going 10 yards. Yeah, that's that's not something you have on the bingo card, so to speak. Uh, that was just horrifying. Okay, so we'll run through the results of this for anyone who might not have seen it, although I find it very difficult to believe if you're listening to this podcast that you didn't at least get the gist of what happened in the Penn State-Indiana game. So Indiana controlled this game through most of it. They forced a number of turnovers in regulation, well, a two-score lead early I'm in the gonna, fourth quarter. I'm going to challenge that assessment because uh, Indiana controlled kind of the game flow, but Penn State really controlled things from a down-to-down basis. Uh, Penn State outgained Indiana 488 to 211, but ultimately the turnovers were very timely and Indiana capitalized on every single one of them. That's that's fair to say. So when I say that Indiana's in control, what I mean is they have a two-score lead in the fourth quarter. Right. They end up squandering that lead. We go to overtime tied at 28 after, again, Indiana kicks the ball off and I've never, I don't know what, I can't wrap my head around what that was. But to even get to that point, though, Indiana had to score that late touchdown and then they kick the ball off to Penn State and my god like it could not have gone 10 yards and they go to overtime Penn State gets the ball first and they score a touchdown in pretty short order I think Clifford ran it in on like the second play didn't he yeah um so now Indiana gets the ball they get down and they're I think they scored their touchdown on fourth and goal didn't they where it's a yes, design they it's they spread everybody out they have four guys in diamond on the right Penix by himself in the gun he takes it Penn State sends a run blitz that honestly should have ended the game it was a good defensive call they read the formation correctly they sent the right pressure, but it just because of the way the linemen bounced around off of each other, there was just enough of a lane for Penix to slither. And, and bounce, I don't know how he bounce saw cut, that. He bounce cuts to the left. Oh, dude, it was a run. It was 
excellent running back type. I, of yeah, I really don't know how he saw the lane because he had to make a straight lateral cut yeah. to do it, but he after, got it. Well, after taking a couple steps forward, yeah, then, yeah. But he he gets in for the end zone, and you and I immediately start shouting two, two, go for two, go for two, as we always do because we're jackasses, but. In probably 99... Well, because we prefer to win the game instead of maybe hope it goes on a little bit more. And also, I mean, I'm a big believer in... Um, I'm a big believer in momentum more in college football than in the pros. Yeah. At that point, Penix has kind of been shut down all day, and he got going on that drive. Yeah, and these... Again, because they're not pros, these guys are certainly more vulnerable to emotional ebbs and flows. And the other thing is, as you mentioned, there's this yardage disparity where you know if you're Tom Allen... Penn State is the more talented team. The longer this game goes on, the more likely it is that that talent advantage becomes insurmountable, that some superior athlete makes a play we can't get over, can't scheme around, and we lose. We're going to try to end this now. So he did it. He went for it, which I would say probably 95 times or more out of 100, no, a college coach isn't going to do that. They're going to say, no, what if someone criticizes me for making a decision? I got so mad in the Texas-Oklahoma game because it was like, if you're coaching in this game, look how bad the opposing defense is. Yeah, it's like it... That's the other thing in this situation in particular is it's one thing to say, look, we're just going to continue playing the game and not lose it here. But that's so backwards to me, because if you don't have the confidence in your offense to get a to make a three yard conversion, a two point conversion that's that they put on the three yard line. What is that telling them? I mean, isn't that expressing a complete lack of faith in them? So they go for the two point conversion. It's another run play for Penix, and he, man, was he down or was he not down? This well, is probably this he bounced, well, what he did was he bounced it to the left, and then he he dove, reaching the football towards the pylon, and he nearly ran out of altitude right before that ball smacked the pylon. So, well, I, I think the question was more, did the ball hit out of bounds before it touches the pylon or vice versa? The call on the field, however, is that the conversion is good. There's not enough video evidence to overturn it. The call stands. Two-point conversion, good. And they're probably on the desk, on the wallpaper of every Indiana fan's laptop, cell phone, tablet, whatever, is now going to be, you know, Michael Penick's ball extended out just to tap that little pylon. Make a mural of it. I mean, what a heroic oh, hell play. Oh, no, I... What a heroic we'll, play. We'll see how the rest of the season goes for them. I've been bullish on them for a couple years, but that is certainly the kind of thing that you, yeah, you get a painting of done in your football facility, for sure. Because, because this is, they've been so close to a moment like this for so long. This, this breaks for them a 41-game losing streak to top 10 opponents. Wow. 41 games. 1987, I think, was the last yep. time they beat Do you want to hear something opponent. interesting? Yeah. There are apparently two instances since 2000 of a losing team has having 475 or more yards against a winning team with 225 or fewer yards. One of them was this game. Winning team over 475. Lose, er, no, losing team over 475. Winning team under 225 for okay. yards. Okay. Um... And the other one was in 2004 when Oregon gained 495 yards and lost to the Indiana Hoosiers. Really? Okay. So basically only Indiana can do this. <laughs> so, look, the proof is in the statistics, right? But yeah, the, the thing is, the last win that Indiana had that seemed this important um, uh, was, uh, if I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie, maybe the funniest example of uh, Lucy pulling the football because they did beat Michigan State, the defending Big Ten champion, 
fairly early in the season when they were ranked, and then Michigan State decided to troll them by just sucking the rest of the season so that it didn't really um, mean anything. Sure, well, okay, so... That was seen as a very big win at the time for Indiana. I've blacked out most of that season in my head, so I'll take your word for it. Really, the best comparison for me is... I think it was after Wisconsin, the Wisconsin game, so at that point, Michigan State only had one loss. That was very early. You might be right. I, again, I've done as much, as much as I can to forget that. But MSU proceeded to troll Indiana by just losing their next four or so games. Yes, I recall that part. Um, no, what this compares for more to me is Christian Watford's shot against Kentucky, where it's sort of an announcement that this team is now good. And the case of basketball, again, here, good for the first time. And if, and if you want to drag Michigan State into this, which I'm always willing to do, this game, this moment, to me, had very powerful Little Giants vibes, which was the overtime win against Notre Dame in 2010. They call the fake field goal. It works. Big, mo really the first signature win type moment of D'Antonio's career. Yeah, he'd beaten Michigan the year before, but that was the three and nine Michigan team. So this is the, that was the first marquee win of Mark D'Antonio's career. It was a gutsy coaching call in a game in which really his team was out talented by the opponent, but still found ways to get, well, maybe that's not as true there as it is here, but anyway. But you're speaking from a place of experience with something that Indiana fans don't really have. In this case, even if, I'm sure that any Indiana fan will agree that even if this ends up meaning nothing, they'll cherish this forever. Yeah, you will uh, because you know, I mean, because, you know, when you're a fan of an Indiana, you never know when you're just going to go winless the next year and it's all going to come falling down. No, so Tom Allen and this Indiana team, really where they've been the last couple of years, to me, are giving off strong 2010 Michigan State vibes, which is to say they've done a lot of inglorious work to get here. Nobody gives them much in the way of headlines or national attention, but it really feels like this is going somewhere. Um, it, it it feels so much like that Little Giants game in 2010. It, it's kind of uncanny. So the difference, obviously, is we're in such a weird season here that, you know, what if they go like six and two or something? What does that really mean going forward? Obviously, the neighborhood's a little tougher now, given how good Ohio State is, given, I mean, Penn State's not going anywhere. Michigan's going to be a huge challenge. It's certainly true that there's less of an opening here now than there was 10 years ago. But if you're an Indiana fan, do not let anyone take this feeling away from you. Even if you lose a couple games this season and don't win a conference championship or anything right away, it feels as though Tom Allen is the real deal. And we said that before. We've been fans of him for a while. But this, first of all, I think kind of proves us right. Um, Here's a play that we haven't mentioned. And that was maybe the most important. Uh, Devin Ford scoring <laughs> oh my God. a touchdown. Oh my God, we forgot all about it. Yes, yes he did. So Penn State had a one-point lead late in the fourth quarter. And, they, you know, it's the situation where they're in a they're in a part of the field where if they just hold on to the ball there's nothing indiana can do about it there's not not enough timeouts left not enough time left so indiana just opens up the defense and ford rumbles through it and i feel so bad for a running back in that situation because first of all we don't know that the coach tells him remember don't score here i i don't know if that coaching point gets conveyed or not even if it does though even by the time so devin kane or devin ford is a sophomore i think here in college you have to figure he's played a year and change in college, presumably played four years in high school, maybe a couple years before that, maybe even earlier than that. So he's got several years at least of football instincts as a running back telling him, 
always score, always forward, always forward, no retreat, no surrender. <laughs> and then yeah. here, for probably the first time in his career, almost certainly the first time in his life as a football player, his team needs him to not score. They need him to get some yards if he can, but then fall to the ground, hold on to the ball, don't score because then we have to give the ball back to them. Um, and then he just, he's not able to stop himself. And so I feel, I feel so bad for him because you can see as he runs through the defense, he looks towards the sideline as though to say, coach, something's wrong here. I know there's something I'm supposed to be doing. Why come they're not tackling me? Well, not that he's, not to say that he's not smart enough to think of it, but like, you can see that he knows something is amiss and that he is supposed to be doing something. And he and realizes before he gets to the end zone and he tries to just, stop yeah, himself. Yeah, he realizes just before he gets to the end zone what that is and he just can't stop himself. But he's too big and too and moving too quickly so he can't arrest his momentum and he breaks the plane in the end zone. And then, of course, the funniest part is Indiana guys run up signaling touchdown. Yeah. <laughs> That's the part. And then... And then the funniest part <laughs> is that Todd Gurley of the Atlanta Falcons did the exact same thing the next day against the Lions. Yeah, and he was in an even worse position because Atlanta was losing if they by two points. If they had kicked a field goal, just held the ball, run out the clock, and kick the field goal, they would have won. But instead, they take they take less than a touchdown lead, and Detroit has just enough time to throw a game-winning touchdown. Detroit had no timeouts. No, but there was a minute and six on the clock, and so they went all the way back to. And it was it was an uncannily similar situation, a bizarrely unusual situation to happen at all let alone tapping into high-profile-ish. I mean, I guess all NFL games are kind of high-profile, unless, like, the Jaguars are playing. Um, two kind of high-profile-ish football games, back-to-back days. It, it was so bizarre. So at the very least, Devin Ford has got to feel some, some company with his misery there because, you know, that proves that that doesn't make him dumb or shitty. Todd no. Gurley is pretty good. No, I think I think if you're Todd Gurley and you hear about this, maybe well, who starts that text count? Like, who says, hey, can you get me... Todd Gurley's phone number, or can you get me Devin Ford's? Uh, it's probably Todd Gurley because he's, yeah, NCAA he's, violations. Who knows? I don't know that it would be in that. I mean, why would it be a violation? I don't know. Why was Todd it, Gurley's not a booster of Penn State? I don't State. know. Why was it a violation was when Des Bryant went and worked out with Deion Sanders over the offseason? No, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, But yeah, after that, of course, it wasn't a sheer thing. But although perhaps the Penn State angle is, you know, and then some bullshit happened where suddenly the offense woke up. My angle is you were only going to, honestly, they held Indiana to like 150 yards at that point. And this offense was just too good. You were only yeah. going to stop Michael Penix for so long. And you didn't put away the game before he woke up. No, and it... it I mean, the, the Indiana offense, not an elite unit, but, but certainly a good enough unit that you're not going to keep them down for that long. No, and the thing... The concern, I think, here for Penn State is, despite having all those yards, you get 28 points in regulation, and one of those was on a 60-yard touchdown on a blown coverage. So... You had three missed field goals. Yeah. Two of which... Well, two of which were, were Jake Pinnaker from short, and the other of which was the uh, the would-be 58-yard game winner that came up about a foot short. Yeah. That was an incredibly dramatic game, and I, I got to imagine that Indiana fans aged about 10 years during Everybody, the Everybody, dude, you, you and I were strung out in yeah. that game, and we don't technically root for either of those teams, although... It feels pretty fair to say at this point that we've kind of glommed on to Indiana as our surrogate team in these difficult times. So, well, Indiana is like you know, Indiana's the the the, the guy from from my shitty part of town uh, that that made it out or that's trying to make it out, and so I'm rooting for him to do good, even though I'm stuck here in fucking squalor. <laughs> 
Yeah. So if you look at this from the Penn State perspective, what reason is there for concern? Well, there's still kind of a lack of proven weapons, right? And that becomes even more true because I saw just earlier today, Noah Kane is now out for the season. Joining Journey Brown. So Devin Ford is basically all he got left in the running back room, and he just made the biggest mistake of his life. You got to rely on him now. You got to pick him up in a hurry. Uh, it is worth saying that Sean Clifford did really everything he could in this game. Again, threw a couple interceptions, but he, first of all, ran the ball a lot more than I think you would expect. He was very effective running the ball. Because Fryermuth got involved and was very effective. Yeah, but that's what you expect. And beyond yeah. him, you had this one long catch for Dotson, but the other weapons, again, Dotson, Daniel George, there's not another proven option here. And that's going to be a problem because I don't think you want, I mean, let me pull up the box score here. I think Clifford ended up running it 20-something times. That's not a recipe for success for Penn State because you're not going to confuse him for Trace McSorley. He isn't that kind of evasive, intuitive runner. When he tucks it and goes, yeah, 17 carries for 119 yards, which is obviously, you know, a good average of better than six yards a carry. But when he tucks it and runs it, it, it's it's a lot more like watching a car whose driver is in driver's ed, like try to maneuver through the obstacle course without hitting a cone. Because it's like... It, he moves slower than most of the other guys around him. So it's just a little concerning. And obviously there's no proven depth behind him, which is the case with most starting quarterbacks. But uh, yeah, there are some issues here on Penn State. It, it's of hard, all the it's... in-person moments to lose to COVID, though, this for Indiana is just... Oh, you don't yeah, want to yeah, think yeah. about that it was, too uh, much, but God... Damn, it got to hurt to lose that yeah, as a our, moment. Our candy stripes for breakfast brought this up, which is, man, you know, this was at Memorial Stadium, an empty Memorial Stadium, and it just, it sucks that there was not... Even emptier than usual, <laughs> You know, for a small building, they do fill it reasonably yeah, well, do. but I will also say, the last, when I went down there, it was 2012, so they were still pretty bad back then. Exciting because of Kevin Wilson, but still bad. Bloomington's freaking gorgeous. Uh, the tailgating is excellent. It's in one big field right across the street from the stadium. I totally understand why you might not go to the game. So anyway, that brings us to the end of the Big Ten week. I will be honest, I did not watch a single minute of football outside of the conference because something about losing to Rutgers just takes it out of you. Did you catch, did anything in the non-conference catch your eye across the rest of the country? I mean, I was just paying attention to see if Oklahoma would lose and they didn't. Uh, Clemson of course, wasn't challenged. Um, it's been since 2017 that they lost to an ACC team, and that was a massive, massive upset win by Syracuse. So uh, it's been even longer since like a team actually like went in there, a program that was like, like able to favored, stand toe to toe, favored, or within know, a couple, or, points. or like maybe maybe a seven point underdog, but another conference title favorite. Not like a huge long shot, like a program actually stood toe to toe with Clemson and knocked them down. That was in the ACC. Yeah, um, our our, our uh, you know, pit is not it. It turns out uh, they got absolutely waxed by Notre Dame, and that was really really annoying. And uh, I did see the North Carolina was it North Carolina NC State. There was uh, this one play where um, there's. They were throwing a touchdown pass, NC State was, and the guy just kind of, it, it, he had two hands on it, dropped it a little bit, and a defensive back just picked it out of the air. <laughs> you know, awful. we will see in two weeks Clemson goes to Notre Dame. I think what's going to happen in that game is we will see a replay of Bama, Georgia, where it's like, oh man, this is another top four team that they're up against here. 
maybe they finally get challenged. It's like, well, no, actually, they're much better than that team, even yeah. though they're also a top five team. Oh, I mean, so. Clemson <laughs> played Notre Dame playoff last year, didn't they? Wasn't it the? I thought it was the year before. Oh, you might be right. Yeah, no, but it was, recently it was enough. The year before. Recently enough, though, that you can look at what Notre Dame has done this year and be like, well, why is the result going to be any different? So that game will be hyped out of its mind. Like, game day is certainly going to be there because it's in South Bend. Um, it's going to be hyped out. I'm like, oh, my goodness, is, is Notre Dame going to challenge Clemson? Look at this big, rugged offensive lineman they've got. He's going to be a draft pick. He is. Ian Book has thrown a jillion touchdowns because he's been here for a decade, and then they're going to lose 38-3 to or some shit. So... Um, that's how that's going to go. All right, so we should move on to previewing the games now. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire!